1: And good morning, it's Wednesday, and that means it's uh, Danny Ratliff Day. That's right, Uh, Danny Ratliff joins me today to talk a little bit about, well, you know, things that are happening in the markets that are important, you know, um, as we talked a little bit about yesterday, NASDAQ, IPOs for private companies. What could possibly go wrong with that, right? Um, Got a lot of things to get into today, of course, this uh, market dip, yes, you know, that we had on Monday. Sharp down day on Monday. Everybody panicking over the Delta variant, right? I mean, this is going to be the resurgence of the Delta variant. We've got to go back into shutdowns. Apparently, that only lasted on Monday because yesterday <laughs> markets rallied back. Pretty much covered the entire gap that opened up on Monday. And again, markets will try to be up today. Look, this really isn't surprising at all. And we've kind of talked about this for the last couple of weeks. Money flows remain positive in the markets. There's really not anything of major concern here. Um, and we're right in the midst of the two biggest earnings weeks of the S&P, right? This week and next week is when all the major companies, about 80% of the S&P, will be reporting earnings. And earnings are going to be good, right? Because, again, you've got to remember we're comparing this earnings quarter over the this time last year right in the midst of the economic shutdown. So... You know again earnings are going to be good for companies coca-cola out this morning beating earnings nicely stock will be up about three percent this morning verizon um also up this morning after beating earnings again not surprising here at all just because of year-over-year comparisons now what you what you're missing and what we talked about in this past weekend's newsletter is that earnings for companies both reported and operating for the first quarter of 2021 are actually higher than they are in quarter two of 2021. Now, imagine that, right? We're still going to have, you know, big growth in earnings this year, but earnings growth rates are actually slowing on a quarter-over-quarter basis. So, again, not surprising. Estimates are always what they are, and uh, companies are certainly kind of kowtowing to those estimates and and certainly, you know, giving some decent reports at this point. So, again, not surprising you're getting some lift out of the markets here temporarily. The question is going to be whether or not that you know this market can make you know keep going up here at this point and making new highs. Now, as we've talked about before, is that yes, we had this little you know two and a half, three percent correction over the last you know few trading days uh, last week and on Monday of this week. But again, we have still not had a five percent correction yet, right? And this has been a very long period of time. In fact, historically speaking, there's only about five other years in history going back to the start of the S&P back in the '50s where you did have you had a year without a 5% correction, right? So, it doesn't happen very often. Now, can it can it happen? Can we go this entire year and just keep grinding higher in the markets this year without a 5% correction or more? And that answer is absolutely yes. It has happened historically before. It's a rare event. But it does happen. Um, and, and the other point here, too, of course, you know, we still have lots of Fed liquidity coming in, lots of exuberance over that. Remember, QE is really as much a psychological formation as it is a monetary formation within markets. So again, just this sheer psychology of the Fed, again, keeps investors allocated to mar- towards markets. Our Technically Speaking report out yesterday talked specifically about the fact that even now hedge funds, portfolio managers, everybody else has now gotten swept up into this performance chase. They've got to be allocated to market. So, again, where are they all hiding out? Well, in the one area that is probably the most egregiously overbought, which is in tech stocks, the technology stocks have had a phenomenal run here. Very elevated here from long-term means. And, again, probably the most subject to a correction at some point here in the future. But again, when that occurs, don't know. But it's at least worth paying attention to that relative to the other areas of the markets, the NASDAQ is extremely extended and particularly because there's been so much money crowding into these big major tech companies like Apple and Microsoft, the big fang stocks. They're very extended from long term means, very overbought here. And again, so if there's risk anywhere in the markets right now, it really remains in those areas. And you know, as we've as we discussed here previously and have and talked about here over the last few weeks, again, there's nothing wrong with the markets fundamentally at this point. Technically, markets are overbought, yes, but 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 again, trends are positive, the the momentum of the market is still very much there, psychology and hurting is all within the markets as well. So again, not much to worry about here at this point, no reason to get overly defensive, but it is worth just remembering that we have had a very long stretch in the markets without any type of corrective action. And corrective actions are, well, healthy, right? It allows you to put some money to work. you a better buying opportunity trying to buy stocks at all-time highs typically not always works out all that well so um, you know it is at least worth kind of measuring the risk in your portfolio and how much how much you're chasing risk here now it was interesting yesterday um, as well the national bureau of economic research came out and said that the recession ended in april of 2020 we now have the shortest recession ever on record, right? Began in February of 2020, ended in April of 2020. So we've now gone, you know, through an entire pandemic. Now, this is an interesting situation though, when it comes to the National Bureau of Economic Research. So yes, they are the official dating arm of the government that says this is when recession is beginning and end. Now, normally a recession takes two two quarters of negative data, right? So you had a 5% negative growth rate in the first quarter, and you had about a 29% negative growth rate in the second quarter. So that qualified for the recession. But here is the key sentence that the National Bureau of Economic Research said. They said that due to the strong growth that we had in the third quarter, because of all the government stimulus, that they're ending the recession in April of 2020, but any new recession that occurs will now be dictated as a new recession in the economy. So they're not ruling out that we're going to have another recession in the markets. Well, that's what a lot of media thinks. Um, But what they're saying is, is that because of the massive rebound in economic growth that occurred because of all the government stimulus, that they're just going to, to dictate any new recession uh, or any other recession that occurs here uh, in the near future as a new recession. So again, there's periods in history and this, and I've got an article coming out on this on Friday, that another recession within the near term would certainly not be surprising because we didn't actually fix any of the underlying issues of the economy. In fact, they, they got worse, valuations, debt, Uh, the underlying underpinnings of economic wealth inequality, et cetera, actually all worsened during the recession, and we didn 't fix a lot of these issues that normally are taken care of during a recession during you know recessions, as we said before here on the show, are actually a good thing. It kind of resets the plate so to speak, economically, so we can begin to grow again. but because the Federal Reserve and our government didn 't allow that recession to occur and do its normal process of getting rid of zombie companies, etc, all those things remain and in fact have even worsened now. We actually have more companies that are alive today in markets solely because of government stimulus support and debt that should have left the markets now what that does is of course it deters new entrepreneurs from coming into markets filling that space creating organic innovative growth so there are there are implications longer term about stopping a recession from happening and that's what that's what we did but this is also why the national bureau of economic research is saying hey don't be surprised if we have another recession sooner rather than later and like i said i've got a report coming out on this on friday so make sure you get, excuse me make sure you get by the website uh, lots of stuff to get into this morning with danny Relev so don't go away we'll get back we'll talk a little bit about this idea of should we allow individuals to buy into private companies talk about that next with danny rattle don't
0: go away daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence. Our next Candid Coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com advice.com the financial independence candid coffee with Ratliff and Ross real investment advice.com the real investment show
1: And Welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, Wednesday. Danny Ratliff joining me this morning. Danny, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. How are you, Lance?
1: Doing good. Doing good. So a couple of things uh, that you wanted to get into this morning, and this is something I did touch on just a, a smidge yesterday, was this idea of the NASDAQ now allowing, you know, wanting to set up an exchange now where people can buy into private companies. And, you know, what I find interesting is, is, that this isn't the first time that we've seen something like this um occur and just want before i get into my viewpoint on it as we touched on a little bit yesterday I just wanted to kind of get your initial thoughts on it and we'll go from there what do you think dan you think it's a good idea or a bad yeah, idea
2: well it depends on how they actually utilize this so it's in a conjunction with a uh, a joint venture with morgan stanley and goldman sachs so those nasdaq private markets and what the intent supposedly is is for these small business owners who want to gain liquidity in, in their funds that have not gone gone actually public yet. And so it's kind of a pre IPO market. And in that sense, if they're going to sell to the big, the big banks, those firms, maybe that's okay. Right. Let them take the risk. The issue that we know at hand here is that they're going to package this into some, some sexy product, quote unquote, and you know try to sell it to everybody else. And that's where there's a lot of additional risk. Now, being that they're saying, well, that you're going to have to be an accredited investor. There's going to be a number of different things that, um, you know, biomarkers that you're going to have to hit to be able to actually go invest in these types of investments. There's a lot of risk out there. I mean, we talk about the risk in the markets, but then you talk about companies that are just getting started, startups that are trying to gain liquidity and, and trying to make a quick buck. That is where I think there's a lot of additional risk lies, and that's where I see there could be some problems here. I mean, there's a lot of potholes, I think, in their, their road moving forward.
1: Well, and there's and you know there's the the other kind of the big issue is, is that the it's kind of the farce of claiming you're an accredited investor. There's no real check for it. It's just basically you check right. a box on a piece of paper. Are you an accredited investor? Yes, I am. Um and I mean how many and, and by the way, even if you do qualify as an accredited investor, Danny, how many people have you dealt with that have a million dollars or make more than $250,000 a year in income or $350,000 marriage, which is the definition of being an accredited investor? How many people do you know that are really that savvy about the financial markets and how to analyze companies now i'm not saying there aren't out there aren't people out there that can do that there are but the vast majority of the retail investor um, certainly understanding the risk that they're getting into uh, you know bypasses them by a large
2: majority well i I think it's it's probably pretty large but the other aspect of this is that we're not looking at balance sheets we're talking about these startup companies you're looking at an idea a lot of times. And so, man, this is a fantastic idea. I think they're going to be able to capitalize on this. And it's an emotional investment, just like many times when people want to invest in that IPO and we see that initial pop. And then, you know, many times we see a drop um, shortly thereafter. And So, you know, a big take is, you know, being able to do some analysis, see what the actual numbers look like over time. Once they are a public company, there's a big difference in, reporting and, and how they have to do things and how they gain access to capital mm-hmm. versus a private company and so i think that you know it's a much more difficult environment to do your due diligence on when you're talking about some of these private companies versus a public company where we have access to all the data
1: well and here, here's another aspect of all this this is something and the, and this is the interesting part so it's goldman sachs and morgan stanley that are teaming up with The NASDAQ to, to launch this new market, right? Which is interesting because this just provides Wall Street another way to unload shares early, right? So, before Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they buy into the private company very early on. The company gets ready to go IPO. They've got to wait through the IPO, bring it to market, and then potentially get it out. This is giving them an opportunity to even exit even earlier. Uh, to sell their shares through the exchange to individuals and say, okay, here, you be the bag holder now. (laughs) Because, you know, we've seen a lot of companies come public. You know, we remember the companies that came public and did well, right? Correct. We don't remember all the companies that came public and failed. And there's more than, there's a lot of dead bodies out there from Exodus Communications to Global Crossing to others that came public because they were this great idea at, you know, the peak of a market. And did not did not perform well for investors so that's not an uncommon situation but that's really kind of the other point here too is that you know the last time that we've seen you know these types of things going on where there was a push to get retail investors into products are typically occurring right at the peak of financial markets where you know there's a lot of exuberance there's a lot of demand by individuals to get into the stuff and right now there's a lot of pressure individuals are going hey i want to get into this pre-I- pre-ipo pre stuff and so wall street goes hey there's a lot of demand over there that we can sell some product to which means that we can bring more companies public this way and get them out you know we already went through the spat craze we're doing you know doing that whole that whole thing and now this is what another those, way to, yeah exactly this is another way to get them out there um And again, this is typically kind of what you see at peaks of markets. You know, we have more money losing companies coming public right now than we did back in 1999. Um, And that's just, you know, kind of a, a marker that this is where demand is meeting the supply constraints of Wall Street. Wall Street's having to bring out anything at this point, to meet demand for you know investors that that are clamoring for shares of new companies, so they're bringing anything to, to market that they can find. If you've got a crappy idea with no revenue, this is a great time to go public. Um, <laughs> but that's what's that's what's happening now so we're bringing a lot of money losing companies and this is going to work out poorly for a lot of investors down the road and what will happen is is that eventually when we do have the next big downturn in the markets there'll be a lot of people that lose a lot of money there's going to be a lot of people getting sued over this and then then we'll come out with new legislation that says well maybe retail investors shouldn't get into these pre-ipo markets you know because they don't understand the risk we need to protect them from themselves and that's how we wind up with these these new rules and regulations all the time on wall street
2: Yeah, it seems to ebb and flow where it goes in one direction then completely in the other. And it depends on what the market environment is and how bad people were hurt. And, you know, that's one of the things where we saw with, even with Robinhood and some of these online traders where a lot of stuff has came about because of that and because of the the downturns that we've seen previously. Um, You know, investor psychology has changed quite a bit as well based on kind of the animal spirits that we've seen. Mm -hmm. And as we continue to see, you know, the market continue to, to rise, I think that, um, you know, that will, that problem will likely be multiplied over time, but it's interesting. You know, we had a, we had a day where, you know, yesterday, two days ago was actually a, a fairly, you know, it was a, it was a bad day. It wasn't terrible down, you know, depending on the index between about one and a half and 2%. And like you've been discussing, it felt a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So what happens when the wheels really fall off at some point, or you see that correction, we've been discussing that five to 10% pullback. That's a totally different environment. Right.
1: And it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's literally the market's down two and a half, three 3% over a three-day period. And the media's got their hair on fire. Jim Cramer's on the air going, oh, my gosh, this correction isn't going to be over until speculators are wiped out. Well, I mean, it was over the next day. Uh, So either we wiped out speculators on a 1% correction or not, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, this is just how sensitive the market has now gotten to these downturns is that, you know, even a 1% or 2% correction, you know, now requires intervention into the markets. Now, here's an interesting point. In the correction that we had um, earlier this year, that went back, I think it was in late uh, February, um, we, when we had this correction and the plunge protection team, it's the, it's the group of traders that work for the Federal Reserve that actually buy all the bonds for QE. They were invited to the White House uh, on the very bottom of that clip. And then the market rallied from that point. Um, on Monday, Powell was taken to the White House and had a conversation um, with Biden on Tuesday. <laughs> market rallies. So I mean, you know, the the point here is is that, you know, the 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 market is so sensitive to downturns now and even the Fed is now so sensitive to downturns that even a 1 or 2% correction, which is healthy, is now beginning to be deemed to be, you know, we can't have that. We can't have a downturn in the markets. And even investors are getting this way. We got an email on Monday after two down days in the market saying, hey, you know, w- when's this sell-off going to stop? I, you know, when are we going to go back to making money? It's, it was two days of a sell-off. They even yeah. even investors have gotten overly sensitive to downturns. And, and that's not healthy for markets, you know, longer
2: term. Well, it's interesting, you know, Monday, my phone starts blowing up with different news organizations saying, hey, can you guys talk about this? And, well, there, there's not a big story here as of yet, but <laughs> sure, you know, uh, and, and I think that's the sentiment with everybody because it's been so long since you've seen that volatility. You know, that 10 percent correction is not out of the question. Right. Still, as of today, I mean, we're, there's still a lot of there's there's concerns, but we seem to have the wind at our back for the moment.
1: Right. Yeah. And look, I mean, as I was saying at the open today, is that there's only about five years in history previous to this year uh, that did not have a 5 percent correction. So it's not out of question that you won't have a 5 percent correction this year, but we haven't had one yet. And, you know, it's it's a rarity that you have a year that doesn't. So could we not could we go this entire year without a 5 percent correction? Absolutely. It's certainly possible. It's a It's just a very small possibility. But sure, it's possible you know the probability is we're going to get a bigger correction here at some point point. and again that's not the end of the world that's a, that's an actually an opportunity to put some capital to work at at better prices you know the problem is is that we get so complacent about the markets and we have this fear of missing out on the rally that we stay, you know, we stay at the party for too long, right? And and then the cops show up, and then bad things happen. So, you know, you know, but that's the real problem here. I mean, and this is even our article that we had out yesterday on our website talking about hedge funds and pension fund managers. They're now swept up into this chase as well. They've got to be allocated. They've got to be all in the markets. They've got to be chasing performance. They had a rough first quarter of this year. They're trying to play makeup here in the second quarter because they suffer performance risk just like advisors do that if they don't, you know, perform with the markets, they're going to potentially lose billions of dollars to other managers that did better. So there's this there's this whole mentality in the markets on this fear of missing out that they've got to be in and that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's it's worth understanding that this is more of a sign of exuberance in the markets. And if we had better participation in the markets, it would be a little bit different story. But you've got basically only about 40% of stocks above their 50-day moving average, and the whole market is above its 50-day. So you've got a very, what they call, narrow breadth in the markets. It's uh, The rally yesterday was fine, but it was on lighter volume than the sell-off. So again, not a lot of commitment to this rally um, in the short term. But again, it's just kind of this whole psychology of the market is really driven more by greed than it is by logic or by fundamentals. And that's always kind of just a worrisome sign that investors need to be aware of. It doesn't mean you need to sell everything to cash. <laughs> you know, that's that's a mistake that investors make. Because oh, I, you know, Lance said that you know this is a little bit overbought here. I need to get out. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is just the, there are some things out there you need to be aware of, but we still need to participate with the markets. Be right back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Getting to our next story here. Don't go away
0: and you're so bad. You're listening to the Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Ross of RealInvestmentAdvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, name's Robert, Sandy Ratliff, joining me and uh, just talking about a little bit, uh, you know, kind of about buying the dip in the market. Here's, a, you know, kind of an interesting stat for you as we were talking about, um, you know, earlier is that. You know, when you get into kind of frenzy areas of the markets, kind of the, the market manias, right, where there's no, there's no risk of losing money, at least it seems that way. Uh, markets aren't going to go down is the, is the premise. You know, this time is different. You see a lot, as we were saying earlier, see a lot of companies coming public that really probably shouldn't be public. NASDAQ, just on, the, on CNBC this morning, talking about they have welcomed 135 new companies. Now, this is just the NASDAQ. This doesn't include the S&P and others, right? So this is just the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ has brought 135 companies public in quarter two. Just in the second quarter, 135 companies came public. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. There's very few companies in this world that should be public, right, um, because of they've got good revenue growth. They've got good sales. They've got a great product. They've got a, a strong organization. 135 companies is a lot. That's a lot of companies coming public. And unfortunately... A lot of these com- companies that are coming public, as we were saying earlier, are not fundamentally that sound, right? They're losing revenue. They're losing earnings. Uh, they only exist because they've got funding from private sources, hopefully. And, 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 but hopefully the company will become, you know, the next Amazon, right? This is the, this is the hope for everybody, right? Um, in reality, that doesn't happen very often. And a lot of these companies will not do well um, or they will cease to exist at some point down the road when we have the next market correction. And again, but that's just a that's just part and function of what's going on in the markets now. Right. This is just uh, again, it's just that that sign of exuberance. And that's just a, a good example of this where, you know, the Nasdaq is rushing to get companies public. Now, why would now why would the Nasdaq rush to get companies public? Right. Because they make money at it and they make a lot of money at it. If you think Wall Street is there as your friend, you know, it's always great. I love these, you know, like these uh, commercials of, of Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, it shows their advisor, you know, walking down the beach with their clients, you know, in retirement. And It's like these companies are not there for you, right? The, the, these companies are there to sell you product, and they're happy to do it because that's how they make money. Investment banking is where they make their money. There was a recent survey. I've written articles on this before on the website. But there was a survey out not too long ago, and they went and, they, they, they went and surveyed all Wall Street analysts. And they asked, what are the most important criteria of your job? And the most important criteria of their job were making sure their investment banking clients were happy. Where was the retail client? At the very bottom of the list with the least amount of responses, right? Because you're not important. What you are is your seed money for everything else wall street is doing so you know this is when you're told that you need to buy something oh you need to buy into this ask questions why are you telling me to buy into this who's it good for is it good for me or is it good for you right that's the questions you want to ask anyway let's talk about uh, buying the dip here danny's got some interesting stats this morning all right danny let's get into it what you got
2: well no you know i've got a story on that i think it's kind of kind of pretty good you talk about the advisor walking on the beach with their clients and i've worked at two large firms in the past and um it's interesting years ago they roll out these commercials with this and it'd be the advisor going to a retirement party with their client but yet that firm didn't allow their advisors to have that type of relationship with their clients <laughs> like they weren't even allowed to go to a retirement party it's it, so those i'm sure all that's changed over the years but right. uh just kind of an interesting dynamic where you know they want to make sure it's their client not your client you know right. and and when you're working with somebody it's a relationship you know you you have to gain a level of trust and, you know, you want to be there to celebrate those milestones and those good moments. And so it's just kind of interesting you mentioned that. But so getting into some stats, you know, one of the other big things that we always see is these companies come up with these stats to show you, well, what if you miss out on the best days of the market? You should be buying the dip. And I saw a plethora of different articles over the last uh, you know, couple days now that we saw a little bit of a dip saying that you need to be buying this dip. But number one, how do you know it's the bottom? Because everybody wants to catch that falling knife, right? As of of Monday, I would bet that many people thought that there was more pain to come, and there still may be. But, um, you know, I start seeing all of these different uh, stats that come out. In fact, J.P. Morgan comes out and says, if you invested $10,000 in in 2001, it would now be worth Mm $42,000. Well, great. We're talking over a 20-year time frame, 7.47% annual return investing in the S&P 500. But, if you missed the best ten days, that number would only be nineteen thousand three hundred and forty seven So we always see these great stats on how you know you have to be invested, you have to stay in but one thing they fail to to mention is what happens if you miss those worst ten days right. and you've actually done some stats on yeah. that in the past and you, for our retirement right lane, which, by the way, is coming back live In fact, this uh, this fall. We're, we're hoping to get back to in-person events. So uh, we'd love to see you guys out there. Stay tuned to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Check the seminars. We'll be doing more. And uh, Saturday, we're going to do a can of coffee, Financial Independence, so you can sign up there as well at Real Investment Advice. We'd love to have you. But you know, talking about buying this dip, how difficult is that? And you know, we talk about using technicals to our advantage, Lance, you know, maybe walk through some of the things that you're thinking of as you're watching this kind of unfold, because I think it's it on paper, it sounds a lot easier than it actually is, number one. And then actually executing, it's a whole different story.
1: Well, and and look, a lot of this, it's always interesting because, you know, they'll say, well, retail investors bought the dip yesterday. And that's not really true. You know, you know, in fact, I I just updated that chart of the missing the 10 best days for for your for your seminar that's coming up and i just updated that chart for for uh for richard um and it's interesting you know the gap if you can just miss the 10 worst days of any given year the gap between what you would make is far you make a lot more money over a year by missing the worst days rather than missing out on the best days and if you miss out on both days you actually do better than the s&p so, you know, it's that's and that's the interesting part about this is that, you know, we worry about trying to catch the bottom. We worry about trying to, to get into the markets. And, and it really obfuscates the whole point and the whole reason that we're investing. So, you know, the whole reason that we invest is that we've worked hard for our money and those are our savings and we're trying to make our savings grow at a rate of inflation. So our purchasing power parity of our savings remains the same in the future. And we get we get off track because of the media and because of, you know, our emotional biases of trying to outperform the markets and trying to do this, that and the other thing and trying to beat the markets. And and that has nothing to do with protecting and growing our savings which is the whole point that we invest to begin with and we forget that right we forget that we're just trying to keep our savings intact and make sure they're being adjusted for inflation and look to grow if you you know even if inflation's at 3% or 4% you know that's a reasonable target to grow your money at trying to make 8 9 10 11 12% every year uh, and look and expectations there was a survey out just a couple of weeks ago Investors currently expect to make 17% a year on their money. I mean, it's just, you know, historically, you know, yeah. going back 100 years, it's it's eight at best. But, you know, this is what, how markets work. You know, but, but you know, trying to catch bottoms is, is always interesting. Yeah, you might have gotten lucky and, you know, bought some stuff yesterday, right? Great. Good job. You you bought the bottom of the market. Or you bought it on Monday on the, you know, you bought into the market on Monday just on a whim most people didn't and and this is always the the fallacy and and one of the big problems with the financial media is they go well if you would have bought the market in you know March of 2009 you would have made all this money that's true well they never told you to get out of the market in June of 2008 before it collapsed 50%
2: So it actually raised some cash to have money to go buy
1: (laughs) exactly. They told you to buy all the way down into March of 2009, and they forget that they forget that part that they told you to hold on and 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 you know take this 50% loss. And they go, but hey, if you would have bought in 2009, you would have made all this money. And you know, and that's the problem with the media is always kind of cherry pick these data points and they kind of forget about the stuff that they told you to do. You know kind of all along the way of just buying and holding all the way down jim kramer was telling you to buy all the way down the market in 2008 right and you know you know the the fact that nobody ever tells you to sell is one of the bigger problems of the markets and, and again nobody was telling you to sell out you know last week and nobody was telling you to buy into the markets on monday during the middle of the decline you no know, it's just it's just that's not the type of information that you get so talking about buying dips and all this is really kind of nonsense because it's not what most people do. And if you are doing it, congratulations, um, that's awesome. But it's a very difficult process to repeat consistently over time. Eventually, you're going to buy a dip and it just keeps going, a la what happened back in March of 2020. You know, we had that first initial dip in early March. Market rallied back a bit, and everybody was like, "Okay, that's over with," <laughs> you know. And then it proceeded to go down another twenty percent in two weeks. So, you know, there's there's those situations that are going to happen and again you may get lucky buying 50-day moving averages right now and and that's been working but at some point that's not going to work and then the question is going to be well what happens now you bought the 50-day moving average you've now broken the 50-day moving average you're now heading towards the 200. do you just write it out do you try to sell try to buy back at the 200-day move what are you going to do um and then you get the 200-day moving average and now you've you you're not sure because now it may go down more and now this is where all the psychological errors kick in to where we start counter kind of countermanding our own psychology and drive ourselves into this point of paralysis where we don't do anything and then we miss the bottom and the market runs back up and now we start trying to figure out how to buy new highs this is why investors historically speaking underperform markets consistently over time but that's kind of what happens anyway we'll come back after the break got some other uh, stories to get into we'll talk a little bit about airbnb is now moving into pools Really? Be right back after the break. I'll tell you what's up with that.
0: to The Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next Candid Coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff Ross of realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: couple of uh questions here for danny as we uh get ready to wrap We'll also get to uh some of your questions on our live uh youtube stream right now so if you go to our youtube channel and uh join our chat box you can always um ask us questions right there through the chat window and we'll be happy to answer them for you live on air um of course if you're in your car right now don't try to do that uh just listen and (laughs) hopefully we'll get to questions that you have for yourself so (laughs) um always safety first this is always the important thing um so danny um airbnb and ferraris what what is going on with uh, airbnb right now i'm wanting to now get into renting out pools is that is that my understanding
2: well there, there's companies similar to airbnb not quite airbnb-esque but there's a yeah. company called swimpley and there's another there's a couple others that are coming out <laughs> that are actually allowing homeowners to rent their pools and you know i started reading this article and i thought "Huh, man a pool is certainly a You know, it's a money pitch. It's like they say, when you have a boat, it's just a hole. You throw in the water, you throw money in, and people are actually making good money on this. You know, there is a host on average earns between five to ten thousand dollars a month, supposedly, and you know, that's real money. Wait, hold on a second. So
1: wait, wait. If I'm if I'm making five to ten thousand dollars, let's just say let's just say five thousand a month. That means basically I'm renting out my pool every day for roughly call it. You know, during the week, right? Or say you on the weekends, right? So $500 a day, $300 a day to rent the pool. Who's, who's who's paying that?
2: They're going from 35 to $50 an hour. And families, they're saying families between five and seven are renting them. Some are... are- are noting that, you know, sometimes there's big parties that they have. The issue is that many people have to, have to turn us into a full-time job. They're getting out there, uh, you know, they're also having to pay quite a bit more to clean the pool on a regular basis. They're getting out there on a daily basis to make sure everything's ready to go for their guests. And it's turned into one of those deals where they're having to monitor because you don't know, what if you get some young kids out there drinking beer all day that are 19 years old, by the pool and they go off and drive I me, mean, I think there's a lot of additional liability associated with well, yeah, it. I was, was
1: so, going to ask you the question, right? Which is brings up a couple of points. One, you know, uh, insurance uh, on, on this issue. So what happens if you have guests at your house swimming in your backyard that you rented it out, somebody drowns, you don't have a lifeguard on duty, Right. So no. you know, where where's homeowner liability in this point? You know, this is one of those things that again, this goes back to our original conversation. And and first of all, it just goes to show you we have completely slaughtered the English language now, swimply, really, just to get a dot com name, we <laughs> we start coming up with let's misspell every word in the English language so we can get it on a dot com address. Um, but you know, this is one of those ideas. Look, it sounds great, you know, on the surface and and right now there's certainly a demand for it, but you know, this is one of those things that I have a feeling and maybe I'm wrong, but as time goes on, people are going to go, yeah, I'm not really, you know, <laughs> you know, interested to have all these strangers at my house all the time.
2: Yeah, I agree. But I think people are always anxious to make a quick buck and an easy buck. And if you've yeah. got the access to it and maybe you're not using it, I mean, some of the story goes, they're saying, hey, lots of homeowners who empty nesters are saying, hey, this is an easy way to make some money. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, liability, I think, is huge. So. That's one th- aspect that I hope that people are addressing, you know, looking at, you know, their homeowner's insurance, what their umbrella policy looks like, looking at other ways to protect assets. I mean, things that we're probably talking about on a regular basis that most people just don't think about because it's not something they do on a, on a regular basis. Right. And that could be scary. Now, I would assume there's probably some liability waivers that they're signing um well but but maybe but look i mean even public pools right you go to a public
1: pool and it'll say you know life no lifeguard on duty swim at your own risk there's all mm -hmm. kinds of warning signs those warning signs are there for a reason and that's because somebody you know drowned and there was a lawsuit and now there's those signs there so if homeowners running around and not doing the proper signage the proper you know the proper disclosures disclaimers signing waivers you know, and I'm sure a lot of them aren't. They're just getting on swimply and saying, hey, come swim in my pool. It's awesome. You know, here's my address, up in my gate. And how many, how, look, is this great for thieves or what, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I go check out people with houses, with pools. They're generally better off to do, kind of case the house while I'm there, swim a little bit, cool off, and then, uh, you know, have a great target for later on in the day, right?
2: <laughs> well, that's right. You know, look, I don't like strangers in a public pool. I certainly don't want them in my pool, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> i don't disagree
1: all right but it's just like this i think this just i think you know look as with all things right we just kind of swing these pendulums in one direction or another hey let's rent out everything we own. you know pretty pretty soon it'll be airbnb for your automobile right so i want to rent my car <laughs> it around for a while here <laughs> you know hey danny we'll call it carly and we'll uh, we'll
2: get that started today well, there, there are actually lots of sites out there like that for luxury vehicles. Now, you can go out and I'm not talking your about luxury vehicles, I'm talking about my 1937 sedan. <laughs> so. Perfect, I'm sure there's a line of people waiting. <laughs> my, my VW bug ready to go. Uh, speaking of cars, Ferraris, you know, it's so interesting. I came across a headline uh, talking about how people are actually utilizing their funds to purchase new assets to avoid capital gains. And, you know, this sparked a couple different reactions for me personally, just from thinking about, you know, capital gains tax, what may or may not happen here in the future, but also what they're alluding to. And I'm seeing more and more, you know, comments and mentions of, of this is that a lot of advisors are encouraging people to take out, you know, loans against their securities and say, hey, you don't have to pay the capital gains. You can defer these until a later date but you can use these these securities as collateral to go buy that ferrari to go buy the you know build the build the pool the next house whatever it may be instead of going out and getting a loan and we're always you know exercise a lot of caution surrounding that and it can be a good tool in the right environment at the right time especially if you know exactly what you're doing but the issue is many people just don't and you know one of the things i think that's failed to mention is the margin calls that can occur and being in an environment, Lance, I know you've been there and, and I've been on the other end of it, watching, you know, advisors scramble and, and you know, for weeks, not sleeping, trying to call clients, telling them that, oh, by the way, you have to sell everything you have or come up with X amount to meet this margin call. That's not a good mm-hmm. environment and not a very good exercise to go through together.
1: Well, let's and let's talk about the reality. And here's what happens. ultimately. it sounds great on the surface, right? Just take out a margin loan against your account. Go buy whatever you want. So now I've got this asset, right? I've got this Ferrari. Um, and and I've done this to avoid paying capital gains. Sounds like a great idea. Well, there's a surefire way, and this is how margin will work for you, to not pay capital gains, which is to turn something that had a gain in it back into a loser. And that's exactly what happens during margin calls. And when you start getting a, a declination in your account, all of a sudden, you know, the problem with margin debt is this, is that it's not at your discretion when you pay off that loan. That loan payoff is at the discretion of the broker-dealer that extended it to you. And you will get a phone call that says, um, Mr. Ratliff, you need to you need to cover your margin loan today. And if you don't do it by the end of today, we will do it for you. And your account will be liquidated. Um, all of a sudden now, you've got losses all across the board. And guess what you're still stuck with? The Ferrari. So, <laughs> you know. This is, you know, it sounds great on the surface. But again, this goes back to the whole IPO conversation. This goes back to the whole kind of rational exuberance of the market. This is exactly the the type of behaviors and attitudes that you saw at the peak of the market in 1999. You saw it again in 2007. In fact, you saw it at the peak of the market in 1929. Exactly this type of of attitude, these type of actions. And again, not saying, and this doesn't mean the market's going to crash tomorrow. We're not saying that at all. But what we're saying is that that really speculative markets that seem to be different this time create a lot of really bad behaviors that have really bad consequences uh, down the road somewhere. It may not be this year, may not be next year, maybe three years from now. And the longer this market goes, everybody will say, "Well, Lance, Danny, you were completely wrong on that." Look, I bought my Ferrari, and it's all been great. Maybe. Uh, maybe this time is different. It just usually hasn't been, and generally bad behaviors get paid back with bad outcomes. So,
2: and great now you're going to liquidate those assets years later at potentially forty percent capital gains rate. So good for you. <laughs> Come back, yeah. Which, <laughs> which I hope we don't see. I mean, but that's the that's the likelihood as far as you know some of the agenda items are looking to to get done this year. So, always be mindful of there's unintended consequences with some of these methods. And just be cautious with, it. you know, I see a lot of advisors been touting that. I'm, you know, it's, it's been everywhere, Lance. That's why I thought it was a good topic to bring up, because I'm sure, uh, you know, you're probably going to have that conversation with your advisor here at some point if they haven't already. And not to say it cannot be used as a, a good tool. It can. It can be great for a bridge loan. It can be great for many things. But know what can happen from it and know what's on the other end, potentially, if you have to liquidate it down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, so Lance. Yeah. Big question. How much do you need to retire okay a lot
1: for me personally are you you're asking in general how much do i need to retire
2: well i'm, see, needing, see I'm trying for, to make it up today but no i'm kidding yeah
1: well no i mean you know my my attitude is is that if i when i were to retire i need enough money in the bank generating enough income so i don't have to worry about paying bills that's uh, and, and whatever that amount is based on my cost of living at that point in time that's when i need to retire so was, for me, it's kind of a floating target because it all depends on, you know, where I'm going to retire and what I'm going to do. But for the average person, what is it?
2: Well, I would agree the problem is that, you know, for the average person, you have to take in those expenses, what that looks like long-term. But many of these studies show that, you know, if you're 50 years old, you need to have six times your annual salary saved. Or if you're 65 or 60, you need to at 60, you need to have eight times at 67. You have 10 times your annual salary. Well, those are all moving targets. Those are all likely to change over time, depending on what your job is, where you've been, what you're doing. But you hit the nail on the head. It's going to be based on your expenses, right? And you know that's one thing that that is failed. They fail to mention over and over and over again as we discuss, you know, how much somebody needs, and act like it's some magic number. You well, know, at the end of the rainbow. And
1: and the, and the problem is, is the six times, eight times salary is all great in an environment where ten-year treasury yields are five, six, seven, eight percent. It's a totally different story when yields were at one, you know, a million dollars in 1980 would generate $120,000 a year for you to live on today. It's $10,000. So you're gonna need a lot more than eight times, (laughs) you know, based on current interest rates
2: correct. And then it depends on when you actually retire. What age is that? I mean, that's going to look a lot different for many people. So. Well,
1: good news for that, though. Life expectancy is declining. So that's shortening the hold window as well. <laughs> that's yeah, for so if 67,
2: that's, maybe you don't need that 10 times salary.
1: Exactly. That's. We'll talk about that next time with Danny Ratliff. Be sure go about the website today, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post and our upcoming articles and our newsletter this weekend. We'll talk about how to position for the markets. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow
0: it's a, rich man's world. It's a rich man's world
1: hey thanks for joining the show today we appreciate it be sure and check out yesterday's show if you missed it on technically speaking
2: Tuesday about hedge fund positioning and more